We'll, uh, we'll take our seats and we'll begin with prayer. I'm so glad that everybody loves each other and wants to talk. But we'll, uh, we'll get started in our Bible study. <laughs> Judy's here. Hey. All right. All right, we'll get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our day. We thank you that you're faithful, that your mercies are new every morning. And we thank you that we can learn your word together today. We pray that you'd give us eyes to see and minds to understand your word. I pray also for Bob that um, through this next sermon in the prodigal son, you'd help us to understand the great mercy and grace that you bestowed upon us in the son. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're going to, I will be getting back to the book of Proverbs, but there's a topical that I wanted to hit before we get back to Proverbs, and that is Bob and I have been concerned as of late about this topic of people talking in Christendom and Christianity in circles that we run as whether or not you can take the mark of the beast. And the idea that has kind of been prevalent is that through the vaccinations, the vaccinations are either the mark or a precursor to it. And fundamental to that problem is a misunderstanding, in our opinion, that the signs of the times are not things that occur, what we would say, in the church age, but rather the signs are something that occur within the last seven years. And the reason I want to handle this again is we always have new people coming, but I want to really help people have a paradigm shift. The old evangelical way of thinking was that there's going to be signs during the church age that gradually get worse and worse and worse, and all of a sudden Jesus Christ comes. Okay? But what I'm going to be showing you is the signs are actually within the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years. So that's the paradigm shift that we need to have. Why is it important? Because then you don't have to worry about taking the mark of the beast. Why? Because that's something that's in the last seven years that you'll be removed prior that you don't have to worry about. So this is a paradigm that I came across about 2010, and I'm convinced that it's correct. So I want to talk about two different views contrasted in evangelicalism. And I'll show you a view that I used to hold to, and I think traditional evangelicals hold to. And that is, let me point to the screen. I'll pull up my pointer. Normally, when people talk about signs of the time... The traditional evangelical movement has placed the signs within the church age. So I want you to think right now that we're living in the church age. Remember, Jesus Christ has come. He's ascended. He has sent the Spirit. He has built his church. And we are now living in the gap between the 69th week of Daniel and the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years. So that's the church age. And what evangelicals have done is they said all the signs that Jesus is referring to in the Olivet Discourse are signs that occur during the church age and then all of a sudden Christ will come. Or perhaps the signs get even more intense during this time period. But what I want to do is show that more than likely from our reading of Scripture, the signs are actually going to occur in the 70th week. And so let me pull this up. Signs, these are our two contrasting views. Either signs are happening in the church age or the signs will happen in the 70th week of Daniel. Now, why is that important? Well, the reason it's important is then Christ's coming at the 70th week is truly an imminent event. Listen carefully. If there must be something that must occur prior to Christ's coming, then his coming is not imminent. But the Bible teaches that it's imminent. Therefore, there can't be anything that happens 
prior to his coming. That must occur. Are you with me? And so because of that, what I'm going to be showing you is the signs in the Olivet Discourse are all within this last seven years. And I'll be proving that to you exegetically. Okay? Let me explain kind of why this has been near and dear to my heart for many years. When I was a brand new Christian, I learned the, the Bible the best I could. I read it and read it. And one section of scripture that I could never understand was the Olivet Discourse. Whether it was Matthew 24, Mark 13, or Luke 21, it was all an enigma wrapped up in a riddle as far as I was concerned. And the reason why is, on the one hand, Jesus seemed to be saying that you can know all of these signs, but then all of a sudden, he says, regarding the day and the hour, you can't know. And so he seemed to be saying, on the one hand, you can know, and on the other hand, you can't know. And that's what confused me, and I could never come to a resolution on what the issue was. And that's until 2000, around 2009, 2010, I had a breakthrough in some grammar in the text, and I'll be sharing that with you. And so from that, I shifted from believing that the signs occur within the church age and gradually get worse to believing that all of the signs are within the 70th week of Daniel. So before I go on to the next slide, let me point out what I believe. In Matthew 24, Jesus is going to be asked a question about when these things will be and what will be the sign of his coming. And what I believe he does is from Matthew 24, verses 4 all the way to 13, he talks about the beginning of this tribulation period. Does everyone see that? The first three and a half years. From Matthew 24, verse 4, all the way to verse 13. Verse 14, he gives a summary that the gospel will still be preached during this time period. When you, when you, by the time you get to verse, excuse me, I'm sorry, from Matthew 24, let me back up. Matthew 24, verses 4 through 8, he brings you to the midpoint, what he calls the beginning of birth pangs. From, cha- from verse 9 of Matthew 24 all the way to verse 13, he brings you to the very end. Does everyone see that on the screen? From Matthew 24, verse 9 to verse 13, he takes you to the end of the 70th week. Verse 14, he summarizes the entirety of the 70th week that the gospel will still be preached. When you get to Matthew 24, 15, by way of recapitulation, he brings you back to this midpoint. And he says, so when you see the abomination that causes desolation, let the reader understand. What is that a reference to? It's a reference to the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week. It's not talking about the church age, is it? Is everyone with me? Now, what does he do from Matthew 24, verse 16, all the way to around verse 34? Well, he starts to focus on more signs within the Great Tribulation, which culminate in the final battle at the end of the 70th week. And then finally, in verse 35, he gives a summary again of all of the 70th week. When you get to Matthew 24, 36, now he shifts to answer the first question, when will these things be? What things? The things within the 70th week. And he says eight different ways you can't know. So in other words, if you're living during the 70th week of Daniel, you'll have tons of signs to look at that will enable you to persevere. But if you're living during the church age, when will that 70th week break forth? You have no idea. You have no idea. One other thing I want to point out on this slide is the 70th week of Daniel is also called the tribulation period. It is also the beginning of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the beginning of God's wrath poured upon the earth, but also the salvation of his people. But it's also considered the parousia. What's the term parousia? P-A-R... 
O-U-S-I-A. Again, let me spell it for you again. P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. The term parousia can be used in the Bible to refer to presence, or it can be referred, it can refer to coming. But when it's used regarding Jesus Christ and his coming, it was exclusively used for his second coming. In fact, the theological dictionary of the New Testament, the writer in that dictionary was hardly a dispensational, by the way. He wrote that so to the forefront was the doctrine of imminence in the mind of the New Testament writers that they dare not use the term parousia for Christ's first coming lest the first and the second coming become confused. So when it's talking about the coming of Christ, the term parousia was reserved for the second advent of Christ. And what we have to get in our mind is that it's not simply a one-day event, a 24-hour period, but a complex of events that goes for seven years in which Christ first comes for the church to rapture it, and then he comes after with the church to bring his kingdom. Okay, that entire 70th week, that last seven years, is the parousia of Christ. One of the reasons we know that the parousia is a plurality of days is because there's a parallel between Luke 17, 26 and Matthew 24, 37. In Matthew 24, 37, Jesus talks about the days of Noah. He says, as it was in the days of Noah, so will the parousia of the Son of Man be. But in Luke 17, 26, Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days, plural, of the Son of Man. In the Greek, they are word for word the same, except Matthew 24, 37, he uses the term parousia. Luke 17, 26, it's days plural. The parousia isn't a single day event. It's a plurality of events. And that's what happens in the 70th week. The 70th week is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes to rapture his church, brings us to heaven. We begin the inauguration of the marriage supper of the Lamb. He pours his wrath upon those who dwell upon the earth. In fact, that phrase... Those who dwell upon the earth occurs 11 times in the book of Revelation, and it is exclusively used of the unbeliever. What is the phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, used for? Only the unbeliever. Okay, so the wrath comes upon the unbeliever, after which they surround Jerusalem, and Jesus returns with his church to set up his kingdom and to destroy his enemies. That's the parousia of Jesus Christ. So what I want to do is I want to talk to you about the signs within the Olivet Discourse, and I would claim that the traditional view believes that Jesus gives general signs occurring in the church age that become more prominent the closer we get to his coming. That's the traditional view. Now, what they would say then is Matthew 24, verses 4 through 35 are the signs of the season. You can know the season, But then when you get to Matthew 24, 36, all the way to the end, then it talks about always being ready because you don't know the day and the hour. That was the general conception in the evangelical world. Here's the problem with that. How many of here have ever been at a pre-trib rapture conference or prophecy conference? I know I used to be on a board of a ministry that did those. Here's the problem is you'll have prophecy conferences in which they'll show sign after sign after sign that they believe is occurring now. Let me back up. 
It's occurring now in the church age. And they see these are all the signs that must take place. Well, if they must take place before Christ comes, you've just lost the doctrine of imminence. So either we're wrong on imminence or we're wrong about the signs. And I think the church has been right about the doctrine of imminence. We really are. We're right on that. But we haven't been right about where we're placing the signs. The signs are not within the church age. They're within the 70th week of Daniel. Is everyone with me? So that's the paradigm shift that I'm arguing for. So let's talk about the doctrine of imminence for just a moment. What does it mean that something is imminent? For an imminent event to occur, there must be two things that are true of an imminent event. Number one, an imminent event is something that will certainly come. Okay, so that's definition number one. If you don't have the certainty of an event, it's not imminent. An imminent event must be certain to come. Okay, is that true with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, it is. Now, what's the second item that must be present for something to be imminent? Not only must that event be certain to come, but the timing is unknown. Is that the case with the second coming of Christ? Yes, Jesus himself says in Matthew 24, 36, no one knows the day or the hour. And then seven different ways, he says, you can't know. It's like a master who goes off to do business and there's a thief that breaks in. Remember, he uses the thief analogy. Or he has the, the people that are working in his mansion are getting out of control. They don't know when the master is going to return. He says all these different ways you can't know when he's coming. Okay, eight different ways he says you can't know. So two things that are needed for imminence the certainty of the event, and the unknowability as to when that event occurs. Listen carefully. This is my doctrine or my definition of the doctrine of imminence. This is the definition, an event that can occur at any moment, but one that does not have to occur within any certain time frame. That's the definition of an imminent event. It can happen at any time, but it does not have to occur within any certain time frame. So if someone would say to you, well, wait a minute, Jesus hasn't come for 2,000 years after we were given for all intents and purposes the doctrines of the new covenant. How can you say this event is imminent? Because it is always at hand. It doesn't have to ha- happen within any certain time frame. It could happen in the next five seconds or the next 500 years. It is always at hand. That's the idea. Okay, so... I think we are correct on the doctrine of imminence, and we'll talk about that more someday. But what I want to do is talk about the signs in the Olivet Discourse. This is the view that Bob and I would hold to, is that the 70th week view, all the signs are within that last seven years. There are no signs to tip a person off as to when the 70th week comes, but there are signs inside the 70th week to edify and prepare those who come to faith in Christ during this time. That's what I would claim. So, if you look at the question, and I'll talk about this question more. Oh yeah, <laughs> I think we just had a sign. Yeah. <laughs> I I want to be clear on one thing. Okay. Yeah. As we're here in the church age, it's imminent, and we don't know the uh, day or the hour. Okay, exactly. but once the tribulation starts, 
And then you have a clear step-by-step through the seven-year tribulation period. If you're inside of that seven-year period, you would know. Exactly right. In fact, in Revelation chapter 13, we find out that the Antichrist reigns for three and a half months. Or, I'm sorry, three and a half years, 42 months. And so if you... We're living during that time period. You know exactly how long the Antichrist is going to reign. Now, what destroys the reign of the Antichrist? The the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right, with the saints. So remember, the coming can apply to either the first part of it or the second part of it. All of it's the parousia. So sometimes you'll see passages in the Bible that refer to the beginning of the parousia, the middle of the parousia, or the end of the parousia, but it's all the parousia. All and nothing but the parousia, right? (laughs) Right. Okay, so yeah, if you lived during this time period, Jesus says, so when you see the abomination that causes desolation, and he says, let the reader understand, Matthew puts that in as a parenthetical, that's Matthew twenty four fifteen. that's the midpoint, you would know that Christ will return to set his kingdom in three and a half years. Now, does that sound like the doctrine of imminence? No, that's not imminent. So what is imminent? When does the 70th week come? You have no idea. That's the idea. When does this part, when does the whole kit and caboodle kick off? You have no idea. That's the point. So what we've been doing is we've been placing all the signs within the church age and yet still arguing for imminence. It's a non sequitur. You can't have signs that must occur and yet claim in the doctrine of imminence. Yes, uh, Laverne, we'll get a microphone to you. Yeah, that's right. Up on your doorstep. Thank you. I just want to understand more about the traditional view because the church has always, well, traditionally said that the signs are occurring and and now they're saying that all of them have been fulfilled. So wouldn't that be consistent with the doctrine of imminence? Because if everything has been fulfilled, we still don't know the day or the hour. It's still his timing and it could happen. And when it does, doesn't the rapture occur and then the tribulation on earth begins? The ra- exactly right. You're right with the, tr- the rapture and then the tribulation. Absolutely. The, the only problem, Laverne, is when Jesus gives the signs, the only timing indicator he gives us is Matthew 24, 15. He says, so when you see the abomination that causes desolation. Now, does that occur during the church age? Or no, is that that's the- in the tribulation. Exactly. So that's the point is what I'm showing is exegetically, he never talks about the church age. So, for example, when he talks about wars... What he's referring to are the wars that are alluded to in Revelation chapter 6. And you might say, well, wait a minute, we've always had wars. That's precisely the point. There's something different about these wars. The wars that will occur within the 70th week function as signs because they are so brutal. For example... Are you speaking of Armageddon? uh, Well, it will culminate in that at the end of the 70th week. But in, in the very beginning, we lose a quarter of the Earth's population due to warfare, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. By the way... That's from Matthew 24, excuse me, that's from Revelation 6, 8. That's an allusion back to Ezekiel 14, 21. Do you remember when God's wrath came upon Jerusalem and he sent them sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts? Those very same four things. Now in the 70th week of Daniel, at the very beginning, he pours those four things upon the unbelieving world. Yes, but could it be that in Matthew he's speaking to people who believe, the Christians, they're the church, which are going to be raptured before 
the tribulation yep. and to the Jews at the same time, which it is yeah. the sign of Daniel. It's Daniel's trouble. It is, um, it's, for the, it's for the Jews and the non-believers who will be here on earth. So, yeah, um, and, and they need to recognize the abomination because they have the word and they should know that when that happens, it's a sign that he's coming. Absolutely, but it's within the 70th week. So here's my point with the warfare. The difference about the warfare is it leads to the death of a quarter of the Earth's population. The worst warfare that the Earth has ever experienced up to this point is World War II. We lost 3% of the world's population. 3%. The opening battles within the 70th week of Daniel, you lose eight times that. And that's the beginning of birth pangs, as Jesus says. That's why they function as signs. So if Jesus is just simply talking about wars and rumors of wars that are during the church age... They really never function as signs. I think it's both. Because, oh, okay. <laughs> and you know why I think that? Because so sure. much, the word is eternal, first of all. The, sure. Jesus said the words I speak are spirit. And if you, you look at the whole of the Bible, you will see things happening. And, and they look like controversies, but it's actually both. It's the near fulfillment and the future fulfillment. You know, there is an aspect of that, the near and the far. I don't think it occurs here. And I'll, I'll lay out as we go, if my data isn't persuasive, you get your money back, right? Okay. <laughs> but I'll, I'll keep going and see, okay. see if you think it's persuasive as we All right. go. Okay? Oh. All right. Yeah, Mike. Yeah. So Audrey and, and I were just talking about as far as signs that have to happen and there are none. What about Israel becoming a nation? I mean, yeah, that absolutely. had to happen, didn't it? Yeah. You know, what's, what's interesting about that is how would it occur in history? You know, the Apostle Paul believes that the doctrine of Christ's coming is an imminent proposition. He teaches it clearly. Um, in fact, we see in the book of Philippians, he says, For the Lord is near, meaning he's at hand and gets so. Um, he's right at the door, we see, in the book of James. And so the idea then is, well, how do we understand this necessity for the reestablishment of Israel? Well, there's numerous ways that it could have occurred in history. We know now in hindsight it happened in 1948. But it could have occurred, for example, where you have the world going on as it always had. You could have had a rapture of the church. You could have had a deal to bring Israel into existence and the rebuilding of their temple that would last three and a half years. At the end of the three and a half year mark, the Antichrist comes instead to put himself in the temple. So there's various ways that God could have brought that about. Um, So the point is, the apostles never saw any signs as something that which something that had to occur first. He was always at hand. And so that's the idea that the, all of the events that must occur within the 70th week are certainly those that could occur in the beginning, so they don't have to happen within the church age. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Okay, okay one other question, too. What about when Jesus... This, uh, w- w- got to clarify the context for me. Um, when Jesus says to the Pharisees and the scribes, you know, you know the signs of the sky, blah, 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 yeah. blah, but you don't know. What is, what is he referring to there? He's referring to the signs that alluded to the fact that he was the Messiah. So, for example, in Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 6, when Messiah comes, the deaf hear, the blind see, the lame leap like a deer, and the poor have the good news of the gospel preached to them. And so he does all of those things, and that's why it's so blasphemous that they attribute the works that he does by the power of the Spirit to Beelzebul or Satan, because now they're applying the Spirit's work is to bring people to the confession of Christ, but they're attributing the work of the Spirit in the work of the Messiah to Satan. 
And so that's why that, that's really the unpardonable sin, because why? They'll never hear any evidence as to the credentials of the Messiah. Whatever credential they see unfold before their eyes, they're going to attribute to the power of Satan rather than the power of God. And at that point, they can't have forgiveness of sins. So that's, what I think, what he's alluding to. And by the way, the apostles do the same signs and wonders. You have the deaf hear, the blind see, the lame are raised. Uh, so why are they doing that? To show that they are the very spokesmen for Jesus Christ. So absolutely good question, Mike. Thank you. So let me get back to this, the slides here, and I'll try to get to this traditional view. Oops, I did that already. Our view. So let's talk about this, the questions that are asked in Matthew 24, verse 3. There's a two-part question the disciples ask. The first part of the question is, when will these things be? Now, what I want you to look at is notice this phrase, these things. What you will see in the Olivet Discourse is they are all encapsulated within the 70th week. There is not one mention of the church age. All of these things are within the 70th week of Daniel, as you will see. The second part of the question that they ask is, when will these things be? They also ask, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? What Jesus does is he sets this up, and Matthew records it in a chiasm. Now, what's a chiasm? Well, what Jesus does is he answers the second question first. Does everyone see in red? What are the signs of your coming in the end of the age? They assume that that would be the one and the same. Jesus answers that second question first. He talks about all of the signs from Matthew 24, verse 4, all the way to verse 35. And all of those signs are within the last seven years. But then in verse 36, he gives us a, a construction in the Greek called peridae. Remember, in the Greek, they didn't have paragraph breaks. You and I, when we read our Bible, we have paragraph breaks, or we read a book, we have paragraph breaks. They didn't have that in the Greek language. They would use grammatical discourse markers. One of them is peri-day. Peri is a preposition, and day is a conjunction. When you put those two together, it's rendered now concerning. And it shows that Jesus now is talking still about the same overall topic, but he has a shift in emphasis. So now he's going to be answering the first question, when will these things be in seven different ways, or eight different ways, he says you can't know. So when does the 70th week come? You can't know. That's the structure of the Olivet Discourse. And the thing that clued Bob and I into this was the Perry Day construction that must be read appropriately by Matthew. Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, showed Jesus was sh shifting topics from answering the second question about the signs to when these things will be. And he says, you can't know. Okay, yes, Brian. Can I just add that there's only a handful of uh, preachers that I know of that believe or, or, or interpret the way that you're interpreting it. And these uh, conferences and stuff like that, these people have been doxxed. They're, they're not invited to these things any longer because they're not going along with the general consensus of, of the belief of answering the second question first and vice versa. So it, it, it's very important that uh, people get this clear. Yeah, thanks, Brian. I, I think you're right. I think what happens in all movements is you end up having groupthink. Yes. 
And I think that that's occurred within the Olivet Discourse. I think there's been massive groupthink within evangelicalism where the signs have been placed within the church age. But when you look at how Jesus structures his arguments in Matthew 24, and again, I bought into it myself, so I've, I've been there. But I could never really reconcile. It, didn't, it really never made sense to me until I saw this grammatical construction. And then it hit me like a thunderbolt. All of a sudden, it clears it all up. Yes, Bob. So when did the last days begin? Yeah, at the first advent of Christ. That's what Peter, or I mean, uh, yeah, Peter preached that from Joel, right? Amen, amen, exactly. So the last days go, we're already in. That's right, and that's another way we could call the church age the last days. Um, You could call the church age the last days. You could call it the time of the Gentiles. Uh, Bob and I often call it the church age, just you have to call it something. So if you call it the time of the Gentiles, that's fine. If you call it the church age or the last days, but they were ushered in by the first advent of Christ. How long will they last? We have no idea because the parousia, the 70th week of Daniel is an imminent proposition. That's the idea. Yeah, Brian. In the last days, see, people think that they'll they'll take it as the last days, but now we're really, really in the last days, but we don't know God's providence. That's right. You can't get any more last days. The the reason why they were the last days is because his coming was always at hand. That's the idea. It was always at hand. Now, let me keep going, and I talk about the questions here in Matthew 24, verse 3. And the first thing I want to point out is notice the setting here is that Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, That is stated in both the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 and Mark chapter 13. But it is not mentioned in Luke 21 until the end. Now, why is that important? Because in Luke 21, Luke does talk about the future, the 70th week of Daniel. But Luke 21, Luke also talks about 70 A.D. Now, how do we know that? Because in Luke 21, 12, you can jot this down. Luke says this, and he's the only one who records this. He says, but before all these things. Now, again, stop there. What are all these things? The 70th week of Daniel. But he says, but before all these things, then he brings them back to the 70 70 AD, and he talks about the time of the Gentiles. Listen carefully. Matthew 24 and Mark 13, they exclusively focus on the future 70th week of Daniel, exclusively. Okay, now, why would they do that? Well, the tip-off is they're focusing on Jesus being on the Mount of Olives. Why is that important? Because when Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple on the Mount of Olives, there's one critical passage that would have come in those disciples' minds. Now, remember, these disciples probably would have had much of the Old Testament memorized. Memorized. Verbatim. They could just rattle it off. They would have known that this was an allusion to Zechariah 14 when the nations surround Jerusalem and the Messiah comes to defeat the enemies and where does he come? To the Mount of Olives. That's what's in their mind. Zechariah chapter 14 verses 1 through 4. Luke in Luke 21 doesn't place this on the Mount of Olives. I, I, I don't know where it occurred. Yes. I'm sorry. Hey, uh, I don't want to go on a tangent but yeah. when you mentioned how many of the Jewish people had vast amounts of of the scriptures memorized when Jesus on the cross said my God my God why have you forsaken me Psalm 22 what he was doing yeah. and I wrestled with this for a long time because we I would talk to people and say well Jesus was the most surprised guy in Jerusalem when he got crucified no <laughs> he 
was referring, he was ministering yes. to his disciples. He was saying, you know, this has all been, this is to fulfill prophecy. Yeah. Because that's a, a, a prophetic psalm. So I think it's just good for people to understand that. Yeah, they would have come right to their mind when it, because of them being an oral culture. Absolutely. They would have, right away, they would have gone to Psalm 22 and this suffering servant being forsaken. They also would have thought about the forsakenness of the suffering servant in Isaiah 43. Absolutely. Well said. Now, let's read the question that they ask. Again, they're on the Mount of Olives. In their mind, Zechariah 14 is in play. Why? Because when all these things happen, they believe it's the end of the age and the Messianic kingdom comes. And so it says, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, notice in blue... That's the second, that's actually the first question. Jesus answers that second, okay? But I also want to point out that these things, when you unpack that in the rest of the Olivet Discourse, it's the entirety of the 70th week, the entirety of it, okay? Now, notice they also ask about the sign. The signs that Jesus is going to give is from Matthew 24, verse 4, all the way to verse 35. And it has to do with the entirety of the 70th week, as I will show you. Okay, so this is how he structures. Again, Matthew 24, verses 4 through 35. He talks about the signs inside the 70th week. And then you get to Matthew 24, 36 or 51. There are no signs for the start of the 70th week. There are lots of signs within it, but there are no signs as to when it begins. Okay, so this is the truth of what can be known. You can know signs inside the 70th week, inside here. But you can't know the start of the 70th week, Matthew 24, 36. So you and I are living during this time period. When does the 70th week begin? We have no idea. Isn't will it be tonight? Isn't that the peace treaty? In, in Daniel, it talks about the peace treaty. Then, then he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. Yeah, absolutely. That will be in the beginning, I believe, of the 70th week. But that doesn't have to occur. That will not occur during the church age. That will be part of the 70th week of Daniel. Does that make sense? Well, just to say, though, that... Yeah. That just to say, though, that there's godly men that would disagree. In fact, Ryan Habana, who used to preach here, yeah. would, he's written books on this, and he would strongly disagree with this notion. And I know that, I, I mean, I can't argue with you, but Ryan probably could. But yeah. the, the point is, is that, wow, what if you're wrong and the mark of the beast does come? What if this vaccine is a precursor to the mark? And, you know, when it comes to that, in which it, which it, you know, with the vaccine passports and all these things and the um, ID systems that are coming yeah. and, and that we've been looking at, I think that it's very possible that this could come. And what if, what if you're wrong and people end up taking the mark of the beast here because they think that they won't be around, they'd be raptured? That could be a dangerous presupposition. Well, Rich, let, me, let me counter this by saying, do you, do you believe the promises of God? Yes. And I know you do. So yes. it was an unfair question. It was rhetorical, right? I know you believe the promises of God. Is one of the promises that you and I will be spared the wrath of God? Like in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, after he's talked about the day of the Lord, he says, we've not been destined to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. We see the same thing in Romans 5, 9. We see the same promise in Revelation 3, 10. He says to the church at Philadelphia, because you've been faithful to keep my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. But, but on the fifth seal, though, you see the saints well, that let's, are underneath let's that. Just, let's just handle one thing at a time. With, with Revelation 3.10, is it a local judgment 
or is it a worldwide judgment? He says upon the whole world. So that would seem to be a global judgment. Now, who is going to be tested during that time period? It's those who dwell upon the earth, correct? And again, that's a technical phrase in Revelation. Eleven times it occurs, and it always refers, the, the earth dwellers, to the unregenerate unbeliever. So the point is we have promises within the scriptures themselves that say that we're going to be exempt from the wrath of God. All we have to do, just make eschatology easy. When does the wrath come? I think it happens certainly at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. Now why? Hold on. Why do we know that it begins in the 70th week of Daniel? Because Jesus talks about the beginning of birth pangs with wars and rumors of wars. You know what? Revelation 6 says the same thing. And those wars are so bad, you lose a quarter of the earth's population. I, I understand that. Me? You understand well, that. Now, what, can wait, I say something? Wait one second. One okay, second. okay. All right, hold on. The wars and the rumors of wars, remember, that's an allusion back to Ezekiel 14.21, the sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. In Ezekiel 14.19, it's called the wrath of God. So why is it no longer the wrath of God when God pours it upon the Gentile world? And the reason being, the reason being, is because there are other viewpoints that say, well, we don't want it to be the wrath of God. It only can be the wrath of man. And that's the critical error of the pre-wrath movement. It's the critical error of the post-tribulational movement. No, clearly this is the wrath of God. So much so that even the unregenerate in the sixth seal say, save us from certainly his wrath. The day of his wrath has come. They use an aorist active indicative saying, yes, it's certainly come. So even the unregenerate in the beginning of the 70th week recognize that this is the very wrath of God. So here's the question. If we're exempt from the wrath of God, Romans 5, 9, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, Revelation 3, 10, then why are there movements saying that, no, actually, we're going to be there during clearly these periods when there's going to be wrath? Well, the, that would be the, the fifth seal now, the fifth seal, the saints are underneath the altar, and they're saying, Lord, when are you going to avenge our blood on these people? Absolutely. So it hasn't happened yet. The, no, that's and that's, true. that's um, the fifth seal. Well, yeah, but when, when they're yeah. saying, hey, when are you going to avenge on us? I mean, there's even a prayer, I, I can't quote it, but it's like, when are you going to, when are you going to basically right. serve up, you know, um, wrath on these people that, that took our lives and, and revelation three ten it does talk about, um, you know, I will keep you from the yeah. hour of wrath because you've kept my word, but you have to understand that in every one of those seven churches, including right after that verse in revelation three ten, it says to those who persevere, to those who persevere, to Absolutely. those who persevere seven times. Absolutely. And so I, I think that I, again, I, I can't, go head to head and toe to toe with you on this because you're a million times smarter than I am no, no, and you no, know no, words that I don't know. But Trust there me, are people that, that can, like Ryan Hobbin is one. And I think that, I think, talk about groupthink. I think we have groupthink in this church that what imminence is is that we don't know at all and then, bam, we're raptured. But I think it's dangerous to consider that with all the signs that we've got going on right now that we might be going on to difficult times and even the mark of the beast while we're still here and it's dangerous to say that we won't see it what if we do see it then that wouldn't look good you know for a preacher that says don't worry about it okay. i'm just saying that i mean maybe in other words you just said it though a while ago well, when you said don't worry let me about ask you it. this should we be prepared to meet christ or antichrist doesn't jesus say do not fear he who can destroy the body but he who can destroy both body and soul in hell so is the pre-wrath movement protecting you from meeting Antichrist, whereas the doctrine of the pre-tribulational rapture view, it protects you when you meet Christ? 
Do you see what I'm saying? I think, so I don't fear yeah. Antichrist. I fear Christ. Sure. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, the do, other, not, the other do point, not fear him who can kill the body. Fear him who can kill the body right? and throw him to hell. That's what you should fear. Can he destroy your, both, your body and soul in hell? No, no. He no, just no. can kill you, but he right? can't, but he can't so throw you into hell. Are you being prepared then to meet Antichrist or Christ? And what I'm saying is the only position that ultimately prepares you to meet Christ imminently, it's the pre-trib rapture view. Do you see what I'm saying? Again, I, I can't argue with you on these points. I can't go head to head and toe yeah. to toe. I, I wish you would maybe debate Ryan Habana. Uh, well, maybe we can do that someday. Um, the one thing I'd like to point out is turn your Bibles. I'm going to show you their rapture passage and turn to Revelation 7.14. This may be instructive. Revelation 7.14. I'm going to show you their rapture passage. They believe this is the rapture in the pre-wrath movement. Revelation 7.14. And they believe, again, in the pre-wrath movement that the rapture occurs sometime in the last three and a half years. The problem with that, of course, is that would give you a very major indication as to when the rapture will occur. You'll know that it's going to occur within the last three and a half years. You will know that. It has to. Okay? Now, I'm going to show you in the Olivet Discourse. That's not what Jesus is teaching. But I want you to see this is their rapture text Revelation 7.14, it says, I said to him, my Lord, you know. This is John responding to the angel. It says, and he said to me, these are the ones who are coming out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in blood, the blood of the Lamb. Now, you have a choice in Revelation 7.14. You can claim that that's a rapture. Or you can say these are the ones who become Christians in that last seven years. There will be people who come to faith and they are being martyred. Well, one of the clues that it's the latter is notice the phrase, the ones who are coming out of the Great Tribulation. That's a present tense participle. And what it shows is ongoing action. So present tense, it's ongoing. Well, is the rapture an ongoing event that occurs for a long period of time? Or is it something that occurs very rapidly? Well, it's very rapidly and it's once and for all. Okay, so the grammar doesn't support the idea, nor does the context. These are people are being killed because of their faith. Now, in Revelation chapter 20, it answers what happens to these people who are killed because, after all, they haven't been given their resurrection. Remember in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 4, it talks about those who had been beheaded. It says they will be brought to life and they will reign with Christ for a thousand years. In other words, they're not going to be left out either. They're going to be part of the glorious kingdom. So, what I would say, Rich, is certainly I don't think that that's a rapture passage. That's an allusion to those who are being martyred during the 70th week. Okay, so let me just, for the sake of time, keep going. And then again, if, if you don't buy it all after the end of this, um, we can just be friends and go our own ways as far as this type of theology. But I just want to present it and let people come to their own conclusions as to what they think. So um, let's talk about Jesus' answer then. Here's his answer, and he's going to be answering... The second question first, what are the signs of the coming? So notice he says, And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all of these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now, what I want to do is focus on what you see highlighted in red. First of all, 
Notice Jesus uses the sign that, notice he says, many will come in my name saying that I am the Christ. Now, what about many? Why is there many that are going to come? I thought there was only going to be one Antichrist. Well, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation 17, verse 12. Revelation 17, verse 12. And I'll show you why there's many who are vying to be Antichrist, but it ends up being just one who comes to ultimate power. Revelation 17, 12. Now, remember, Revelation 17 is an appendix. It's an appendix that John gives us that gives us more information as to what Babylon is all about, religious Babylon in particular. Notice in Revelation 17, 12, he says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for an hour. So notice there are other kings, other false Christs, who will be vying for control. In fact, I believe you read about that battle in Daniel chapter 11. Yeah, Daniel 11. But so what I want you to see here is that when Jesus talks about the many coming and claiming that they are Christ, how does Revelation chapter 6 begin, the beginning of the 70th week? It talks about the Antichrist. It talks about this conqueror who will go out and will conquer, Revelation 6, 1 through 2. Now, why is that important? Because there, Jesus also talks about wars and rumors of wars. Well, we have the first seal in Revelation 6 alluded to here. Now you have the second seal alluded to because in Revelation 6, verses 3 through 4, it talks about these wars. And so bad are these wars, it will lead ultimately to the death of a quarter of the earth's population. But notice we also have the second seal, or excuse me, the third seal being alluded to with the famines. That's alluded to in Revelation chapter 6, verses 5 through 6. Right? So from there, we also have an allusion to the sixth seal where there's going to be a great earthquake. And that's where the unregenerate even realize, hey, this is the wrath of God. You'll read that at the end of Revelation chapter 6. So what do you have? Jesus is talking about the first seal, the second seal, the third seal, and the sixth seal, all within Revelation chapter 6. I think Jesus and John in Revelation 6 are teaching the same thing. Now, why is that important? Because notice Jesus says all of these are the beginning of Birth pangs. Does everyone see that in the box? The term birth pangs there, Odin, is a technical term for the beginning of the day of the Lord. Now, how do we know that? Because that's what Isaiah used in Isaiah 13, verse 8, to refer to the day of the Lord. He talked about labor pains coming upon suddenly the world. Well, now Jesus is talking about these same birth pangs. So these birth pangs are associated with the 70th week of Daniel. And the idea that we see conceptualized in the Bible is that birth pangs happen over the seven-year period, and they gradually get worse and worse and worse until what is birthed is the messianic age, the messianic kingdom. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 3, and you're going to see the Apostle Paul who uses the very, very, the very same term, labor pains to refer to the day of the Lord. Now, why am I showing you all this? Because if Revelation 6 is about the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, well then, Matthew 24 is also about the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. And according to the Apostle Paul, it's the beginning of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a time of God's wrath. 
is it not? So if the beginning of God's wrath occurs at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, and you and I have been promised exemption from that wrath, how could we not be exempt from that wrath? Are you with me? We're starting to put pieces together. Let's just look at the data. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 3, Paul says, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Stop there. Jesus says the parousia comes like a thief in the night. So if the parousia comes like a thief and the day of the Lord comes like a thief, guess what? They're one and the same. So if the 70th week of Daniel is that parousia, then the 70th week comes like a thief. And if the 70th week comes like a thief and the day of the Lord comes like a thief and the parousia comes like a thief, guess what? You're not going to have anything to tip you off. How many people know that when a thief comes, they don't say, hey, they don't call you and say, I'm coming at midnight, look for the blue Cadillac. Because as I often say, if they did that, you would have your shotgun out and your tuna fish sandwich, right? And you'd be loaded for bear. You'd be loaded for bear for those rascals, right? Because, but they come like a thief, that's the point. Okay, so notice here it says, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction comes upon them suddenly. Stop there. Notice while the world is saying peace and safety, sudden destruction occurs. Can you say that after the wars in the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel that destroyed a quarter of the earth's population? Is the world going to be saying we have peace and safety? They've just lost a quarter of the earth's population eight times worse than what we experienced in World War II. No, When they can say peace and safety is here now during the church age, relatively speaking, compared to what you see in the 70th week of Daniel, that's why Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the parousia of the Son of Man. The point of the comparison is that life was going on as it always had, by and large. They were eating, drinking, and given in marriage. How many know that it's not immoral to be married? In fact, Paul says that anyone who teaches that it is is teaching a doctrine of demons, right? In our pastoral epistles, we learn that. So, so yeah, <laughs> I think you're joking there. I think, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, I got you. Well, my point, my point in saying it is that he's depicting not sinfulness, but life as it always goes on. And yet he says sudden destruction came upon them. That's the, the way it was in the days of Noah. Let me ask you this. Before the destruction came, who was removed in the days of Noah? Who was? Well, I'm looking at Lot, and before it was destroyed, he was taken out. Yes, very good. So Lot was removed before the destruction came. Noah was removed before the destruction came. There seems to be a precedent in Scripture. Do you know that Jesus uses in Luke 17 both the removal of Noah and the removal of Lot before the destruction comes? As a, pre, as, a, as a paradigm for what will occur at his coming. What's the precedent in Scripture? The people of God are removed. Then the wrath comes. But Lot's wife looked back. She wasn't saved, was she? The destruction got her. Amen. So let's keep reading here. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 3. Notice it says, while they're saying peace and safety, again, they can only say peace and safety at the beginning of the 70th week, but you can't say once it begins. So this must be the beginning of the 70th week. It says, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like what? Labor pains upon a woman with a child and they will not escape. Labor pains, that's the same term that Jesus is using here, Odin. 
So certainly we have Paul that's building right off of what Jesus said. And Jesus was borrowing from Isaiah 13.8. And they're both talking about the day of the Lord. And the beginning of it comes like labor pains. Um, when my wife had a child, our only boy that we have, one day we're watching uh, Bill Cosby. He's our favorite comedian. And we were laughing and laughing. And all of a sudden her water broke. And I told her to put it back in. I didn't know how it all worked. <laughs> I really did. I thought you could put that all back. But it doesn't work. So here's the point. It came suddenly without warning. There was no warning. It was an imminent proposition. Once she's pregnant, the labor pains came suddenly. You and I are pregnant within the church age, but one day the labor pains come. When do they come? It may be while you're watching Bill Cosby or whatever you're doing. Life will go on. You'll be eating and drinking and given in marriage and sudden destruction comes upon them. That's the idea, and that's why there's no signs to tip you off. It comes like a thief in the night. How many more ways could Jesus say it? You don't know. So why do we have prophecy conferences and prophecy teachers saying, no, you actually will know? You will know. Look at verse 4. I know, that's the point. But he's talking about the signs within the 70th week. Yeah, so get to 2436. No, no, no. But <laughs> not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. Good, I'm glad you're bringing that up. Okay, so... What differentiates right there? You are not in darkness so that this day will overcome you like a thief. But what? What does it say? Keep reading. You are sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. All right, let's ask ourselves a question. Stop there, Rich. Good, good, good. What makes us as believers different from the unbeliever? Because we have knowledge. We know the word of God. Yes, good, good, good. But I'm looking for something more basic. Is that that we know when he's coming? Or is it that we believe that he's coming? Which is the category that we have? What is it? Do we know when Jesus is coming any more than the unbeliever? No, because Jesus himself says even the angels of heaven don't know, nor the Son of Man. We'll, We'll get into that issue another time. But the Father alone. Only the Father knows when the Son is coming. So we don't know when he's coming any more than the unbeliever. What makes us sons of light is not that we know when he's coming, but we believe that he's coming. Amen. That's the difference. That's the category error that you have to, that's the one you got to change. You have to say, no, it's not that we know when he's coming. It's that we believe that he's coming. Yeah. And the picture of the Jewish wedding, only the father knows when the groom comes to him and says, That's right. I am ready. Nobody else in the town, Absolutely. not the bride, nobody, bride, i.e. the church. Uh, Jesus built off of that. Yeah, nobody knew. Matthew only the father knew. Yep. As, the day, as we see the day approaching, what is that verse? I can't think of it. As, as the day draws near, yeah. As, day, as we see the day approaching, yeah. we're supposed to see signs and we're supposed to understand the signs it's not signs it's that you and i are living in these last days and so every day that goes by is another well one is in hebrews 3 i believe is it hebrews 3 1 as the day draws near encourage one another i'm sorry is it hebrews it's oh yeah i'm sorry back there Julie. you know what about going more basic um the passover you know, the whole idea, we are sealed with the Spirit. Yeah. And the blood of Christ is our protection. And we, in that sense, we do not need to fear because he is, he's going to protect us from the wrath. I mean, the, the plagues that came, 
they weren't touched because Amen. of the blood of Christ. I mean, it's, isn't that that basic? And that yes. and there's also another verse that says, if it were possible for the elect to be deceived, we would be, but it's not possible. Well said. I mean, well said. So I want to Amen. Go. Well said. We are going to be preserved from the wrath of God, right? Let's talk about John 14, verses 1 through 3. Remember, Jesus says, in my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Actually, many rooms is a better rendering. He says, I'm going to come, I go prepare a place for you, and I'll come back to get you so that where I am, there you may be also. When he says, where I am, where is Jesus going? Well, he's going to heaven. He's going to ascend. So he's going to bring us to be where he is. Well, that's a reference to the rapture. Now, what's interesting is I believe the same rapture is alluded to in Isaiah 26, 19. Isaiah 26, 19, the people of God are removed. The wrath comes. What happened in Lot's day, Laverne pointed out, the people of God were removed. The wrath came. In Noah's day, the people of God were removed. Then the wrath came. I think the Bible's teaching us something. So the only thing we have to argue about is when does the wrath come? Yes, Laverne. I just wanted to make another comment about, someone talked about the Jewish wedding. Well, in that instance, yes, only the father knew when the wedding would take place. But the bride was able to observe the building of the house because the groom went home and built on his father's house where they would live, just like Jesus is in heaven preparing a place for us to live in his father's house. And the bride could walk by and say, oh, the walls are going up. Oh, now the roof is on. No, she didn't know the day that the bride, the groom would come, but she knew the signs of the times. And that is what we as a church have over the world. They have not a clue of what's going on. But we have signs of the times. Amen. <laughs> Wait, I would, I would say to that... And, Rich and gives a preacher, brother, or sister. Yeah. Yeah. Every, uh, every day that goes by, yeah. you're one step closer. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, whatever God's providence is, his, he does what he does. That's right. So we don't know. But we do know that we're one day closer. So even though we don't physically observe the house that God is building for us in heaven, we know that it's one day closer. Amen. We have group think in this church. Eminence, preacher, rapture. This is group think we have in this church. I'm just saying, I'm just saying that there are godly men, godly men. Ryan yeah. Hobden is one of them, Dr. Kuchner, many, many others that know the original languages oh, and they absolutely. would they would be able to debate you i can't but i think it's dangerous to have group think in this church because if you're wrong the consequences could not be more severe okay as far as the mark of the beast coming as far as these things going on that's why this is dangerous that's okay. what i'm saying and well, it needs for- to be we need to see the other side of it because we have group think everybody believes in this church hey preacher rapture that's cool but it's not. It's dangerous. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Well, I disagree, but here, here, here's what we could say. Um, Rich, we'll just let the biblical data... I'm not going to say this is going to be defined by anyone who's more godly or less godly. The truth is, never is. The truth is always defined by the biblical data. And so that's what we want to look at. Oh, I understand. I just disagree with their understanding of it, and they would disagree with me. But what I want to do is present the data to the congregation and let the congregation decide. Um, no, well, not everybody is. And so the, the point is... <laughs> wait, wait. I, I disagree. So, yeah, I'm sorry. I disagree Go ahead. with that. Yeah, could I? Could I just? I think 
to, to, to try to kind of, uh, kind of uh, maybe make a conclusion because we're running out of time. Yeah. I used to be, uh, believe in a mid-tribulation. I wrestled with this for about 10 years. I think many of us have wrestled strongly with this and listened to lots of other opinions. I've read a lot of books on it. Uh, and so... But I think Rich's point is valid. We do not want to just simply default with with mindlessness. We don't want to not think. Because it is critical. It is critical. So we should be searching the scriptures and and talking with each other because it's important. And we have a role no matter what. We have a role because there's going to be a time when we will be gone and there will be people here who are non-believers. And maybe we will have talked to some of them and yeah. shared the gospel, and maybe they will have the opportunity to be redeemed and then beheaded, <laughs> but they will be saved. So I, I didn't mean to kind of interrupt, but, well, thanks, but I, I think good. it's important. I think Rich brings up a, a great point, but I'd have to push back a little bit. I don't think we're, many of us have thought long and hard about this, and some people haven't. So, you know. Sure, that's all right. Okay. Let me just close. With I want to give yeah. a, a, a preview for the sermon. Yeah, amen. The sermon is about the honoring God and about how the parables of Jesus are telling us that God will keep his promises and it's still open what's going to happen to Israel. So I've been studying this and we're always, the reason we even have this class in these mics is so people can search the scriptures together. And Ryan is my friend. Um, we never broke fellowship. Yeah. First time I ever met him in seminary, the first thing he says, I believe in pre-wrath rapture. That didn't matter to me. Yeah. I wasn't sure. And so I was eventually convinced by a theological journal article. It's never about who's smarter. That's right. It's never about parochialism, who's aligned with who. It's who has the best reading of Scripture. Amen. And so Ryan, my dear friend, called me a rapture agnostic. (laughs) I wasn't offended because I really wasn't sure what's the right view. I was convinced by this Greek. And you don't need to know know Greek, but you need to be able to listen to various arguments to decide which one makes the most sense. And so that's still what I want to do. I was convinced by the Perry Day part. You don't need to know that, but but I have read those books. Somebody just sent one who was one of their scholars, Robert, what's that guy's name? Anyhow, he sent oh, me a book, and he ignored that whole thing. And he knows the Greek as well as I do, but he ignored Perry yeah. Day. didn't even talk about it. So I'd be willing to be on the other side, but when I wasn't, I just said, I don't know. I honestly did not know. Amen. And so the evidence is what ought to convince us, not parochialism, who we're aligned with, um, that doesn't convince anybody. So we're free to debate it, but I don't think it's fair to say that people just don't think because I, I've debated, I've debated a millennialist who was driven to a millennialism because people were saying the signs of the time were in the 70s and 80s, and they were setting dates. And when it didn't happen, he left. So I just just let people. Yeah. Look at the scriptures. So anyhow, in the sermon, we're going to do part two, the prodigal son, the older brother. There's plenty to learn. And I hope we can get a good recording because the last time 
um, the video failed on this part two. So please think about how we want to treat one another, Amen. honoring God. If we are saved, God's already bestowed upon us more honor yeah. than anyone has ever deserved to have. Amen. And Amen. I'm as wicked as anybody that was ever saved. In fact, we don't deserve it. So let's just look at the scriptures, Amen. honor one another. I don't want to do this during a sermon. I just want to stay, say, if we can never dishonor each other in any way while we're patiently searching the scriptures and future history, we're not sure about. Amen. Can I apologize? Oh, no, no. I just, I just want to apologize. I think I offended people and I, whoops. I, I just want to apologize, and that is that I don't want to label people and saying, oh, you guys aren't thinking, you're just groupthink. And I did, and I want to apologize to you. I, I want to apologize to you and to anybody else that offended. I don't want to do that here. My That's only right. point, though, my only point, and I love you. You know how much I yeah, love you absolutely. guys. Yep. And, and I love everybody here, and I don't want to create dissension. Absolutely no way. The only thing I want to do is to show people that there is a different oh, understanding with people that are way more smarter than I am that know the original language. And that's all I want to point out is that we need to be careful, guys, on this subject and not just take one side and only one side. It's very imperative we do that. That's all I. So please accept my apology. Thank you. I'll close in prayer. And um, this is one thing I want to leave you for the assignment. Next time we're together in Sunday school, I'll have you read Matthew 24 and focus on verse 15. Why does Jesus bring up? So he says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, that's the only timing indicator that you're given. And what I'm claiming is if the beginning here is about the beginning of the 70th week and Matthew 24, 15 is about the midpoint of the 70th week, I think we start looking at the data that suggests that all of this is within the 70th week. That's what I'd like you to have your eyes open to. So with that, let's close our, uh, or we'll close in prayer here. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our day together. I thank you for a great theological discussion. I pray for Bob that we'd have ears to hear what he says in this sermon about the prodigal son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, thanks, Bob.